the story of the Buddha saying that, you know, walking around holding anger and resentment is like holding a hot steel rod and expecting the other person to be burnt. You know, and I, I think of that often. It's like, okay, forgiveness for me is me dropping that rod. I'm Manoj Diaz, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. We survived and hopefully thrived in 2022. Man, what a wild-ass year that was. But the point is that we made it, and we can probably make it this year, too. Now, I chose a very special episode to kick us off with maximum positivity, and you know what? We'll likely need it. So here's what you're going to learn and experience in this episode. Our guest, Manoj, treats us to an exclusive live guided breath journey. We discuss his unique upbringing, born and raised in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, He also talks about the creative process for his meditation app called Open, which has some of the most well-produced, gorgeous mindfulness videos I've ever seen. We also discuss common misconceptions about meditation and which mindfulness practices have proven most impactful in Manoj's experience. We also cover practical changes you can make to practice forgiveness without enabling abuse, remain in witness to the now moment even when stressed, and so much more in the realm of practical spirituality in the modern world. This one really packs a punch, you guys, so make sure to take some notes as the tools offered have the potential to make this year the best one yet. Because this is episode 451, Enlightenment on Demand, Meditation for the Masses, and Breathwork Without Borders, featuring Manoj Diaz. You'll find those juicy show notes at lukestory.com slash Manoj. Now, I love spending time with our guest on this one. He's such a centered and grounded guy. Once tethered to a life of self-management instead of self-awareness, he now intimately understands what it means to be healed from the inside out. Through mindfulness and meditation, Manoj has helped thousands of people around the world trade mania for pause so that they may live fearlessly in honor of a happier and more meaningful life. And that, my friends, is exactly what you're going to learn today. But before we start, listen up. Manoj and his team were generous enough to grant Lifestylist listeners access to their incredible meditation, breathwork, and movement app, Open, free for 30 days. It's called Open, and you get it for 30 days. And I got to say, this is the best possible way I can think of to start your new year off right. To get access to your 30-day trial, visit lukestory.com slash open. And when you get there, remember to use the code Luke. Again, that's lukestory.com slash open. And you'll understand why this is important as we get through the interview. Okay, family, let's get ready to activate some powerful peace codes with the one and only Manoj Diaz on the Lifestylist podcast. And don't forget to share this one with a friend who could use some mindfulness. One love. Man, here we are on the Lifestylist podcast. I'm so excited to be here. This is such an adventure to first come out to Texas, but to be able to speak to you, this is uh, it's a great honor. Thank you. I'm excited. Well, I thought we could do something a little different today and have you start us off with a short guided meditation or even breathing exercise. Mm. It's something I often forget to do myself before I start interviews and I start, I don't know, not anxious necessarily but Mm. just like not centered and then it takes me a while of kind of listening to someone talk as my guest and me going inward and kind of breathing and then I land 10 or 15 minutes into these things so I thought maybe today we could do it you know in a new way and you could kind of guide us in something and um, that being said I'll just leave it up to you and just take a couple moments I might add in case you forget 
Uh, if anyone's listening to this while driving or doing anything that requires your full attention, perhaps skip to, you know, three to five minutes ahead to the interview. Yeah. But if you can really take a moment, whoever's listening or watching this, um, drop in with us because uh, this man really has a gift uh, to be able to kind of really drop you into a really uh, beautiful space. Oh, thank you. Great. Okay, so um, this is a practice. It's called Vaz Breath. It is a Tibetan Buddhist tantric practice that was taught around the Nepal, the Nepal Tibetan region as a way for us to get rid of speedy energy in our body. So before a podcast, interview, first date, this is something that, that I would do. And it's a really simple breathing exercise. We'll just do five rounds of them. For the duration of the practice, you're going to keep your mouth closed. And you can do this walking, you can do this cycling. If you are driving, do it very lightly, but it's fairly safe. Don't close your eyes, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever you're ready, just take a slow, deep breath in. Now imagine your breath, it's filling up the front of your belly and the sides of your belly. So it's like a, it's creating a vase-like shape. So I'll lead it, take a deep breath in. And then hold your breath at the end of your inhale. So the belly expands, the sides of your body expand. And we're going to hold here for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Keep your mouth closed. Gently breathe out. Take another slow, deep breath in the same way. Expanding the belly, expanding the sides of your body. Hold at the end of your inhale. And then release. We'll do that one more time. Slow, deep breath in. Imagine you're filling this vase-like shape, which is your stomach and body. And then just hold here, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, on one, gently release, very quietly. And just land in your body for a moment, relaxing the shoulders and just notice how you feel. Whenever you're ready. You can come out of your practice. Thank you. Thank you. It's almost like nothing needs to be said. (laughs) That's a wrap. We're good. I mean, it's kind of the whole point of these conversations really is to help us, you know, learn the various ways and means by which we can attain a greater sense of presence. Yeah. I mean, I also find that particular practice, it gets me out of my head, especially before like an interview where I'm thinking, what should I say? Am I going to sound stupid? Am What's he going to ask me? And it just drops you oh, into you do the body. That too? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> but I find this dropping into the body is such a new experience for so many of us, myself included, because we're so heavily cognized. You know, we're so in our head a lot of the day. So just moment to just drop into the body and you experience the feeling state. It enables like a deeper connection with whoever you're with, but it also enables you to connect with you know, the, the environment you're in. Very much so. Yeah, I realized it's probably about a year, year and a half ago, just had a really profound realization that I had never truly been in my body. 
I would say largely in response to early childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And there was this disassociative kind of like, it's not safe, I'm out of here. And this is after years of dedicated meditation and yoga and all of these things. But it was just one of those moments, you know, you have these epiphany moments where you see things from a totally different perspective. And I, I saw kind of the moment that I left my body and I never really came back all the way, even through all those practices, you know, it was just, there wasn't really a depth of being actually like alive, every cell in my body and experiencing myself in a whole and complete way. It was really, really profound. And then begs, of course, the curiosity of how can I actually take that into my life, which seems like that's a lot of the work you're doing, you know, with the open studio and the open app, which of course we're going to talk about. I think what what you shared is actually a a modern condition. A lot of us aren't in our bodies and it's a byproduct of our culture. It's a byproduct of our society. From the moment we wake up, like my phone is my alarm clock. So as soon as I hit wake up, notifications. (laughs) I look in my calendar, I'm getting emails, I'm getting text messages. And so the very first thing that we wake up to is the the mind waking up. You know, it's all this activation, cognition, planning, analyzing. And so we leave our body. And this is amplified throughout the course of our life when, you know, as you said, me as well, from a young age, we had experiences which made it unsafe to be in the body. So going into the cognition, going into the thinking is a safety mechanism. And it's why, especially when it comes to meditation, it becomes so much of a mental experience where traditionally, especially in, uh, you know, somatic mindfulness practices, like what I'm you know, learning and teaching and, you know, miles and things like that as well have, have talked about. It's so much of it doesn't exist in the mind. It's part of it. It's integrated, but it's begins in the body, you know, and we have this word in Buddhism, it's called chitta, which is called the heart mind, which, you know, we don't point to one place where the heart is or where the mind is, it's kind of in between. And this integration is really the the practice of somatic mindfulness. And it's what we learn to uncover after realizing we are disconnected. It's to come back home to the body. It's to kind of make a, a relationship with it again. So I think something that's interesting about your journey from what I understand is that you were you were born and raised in this sort of consciousness, mindfulness, Buddhist tradition. And uh, and I find that to be, I would say, on the rare side, typically people that I sit down and talk to are just people I interact with in my life that are deeply committed to a spiritual practice and, and that type of evolution um, have arrived there in response to failures in life or some kind of trauma or pain, right? I mean, it was definitely the case for me. I had no interest in spirituality in any capacity until I was in enough pain to go, wow, this isn't working. I need something else. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, and you know, how your family influenced you to become interested in such things. Mm. I mean, it's funny you say that because a lot of people, my teachers would always say, you never come to this sort of practice when you're on a winning streak in life. You usually have to be beaten around by life a little bit to realize, oh, maybe there is something to exploring my mind and my tendencies. But no, I was born in Sri Lanka and Sri Lanka is primarily or largely a a Buddhist country. But the practice of Buddhism is more centered around the religious context. So there's a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say religious context, it's more angled towards ethics good tendencies, more around the showing up in temples and things like that. Less about the meditation practice. Got it. I'm trying got to it. Say. It's more around the, the cultivation of wise conduct, we call it. 
And so I was born there, but I migrated to Australia when I was five and then was really disconnected from Buddhism for a long time. Even though my parents were practicing Buddhists, they didn't have a meditation practice. And, you know, we grew up as immigrants in, in Australia. Far North Queensland was the location that I grew up in and was a very rough place to, to grow up and to experience life, especially as, as an immigrant. Why, why so? Um, well, I think back then it was, you know, it was the 80s, looking different, being different. We were in a, a part of the world that was, it felt very hostile. And Australia has its own relationship to, to racism and, and immigration as well. And so for us, we didn't have many friends or family there. So we were like literally the only people that, that looked like us. Oh, wow. And so um, wow. it just took, yeah, it just took a little while to adjust to that. And that no doubt influenced my practice in later years. But, you know, I was disconnected from Buddhism for a long time and then went to college, got a good job, just like my parents told me to do, was in marketing and finance, was a director and got really sick. And the sickness started with an anxiety attack, a really big anxiety attack at work in front of all my staff. And then that really opened the door for about two years of of really deep, deep suffering. So from everything like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addictions, um, everything in that two-year cycle. And eventually it was a friend of mine who randomly came and saw me. He's like, hey man, come come and do a yoga class with me. And I say this all the time, but the joke was like, I don't own any Lululemon, I can't go. And he's like, no, 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 it's just come. There's hot girls there, just come. And that was how he tried to drag me to to this class. And uh, I went and it wasn't really a yoga class. It was a, a meditation, a Buddhist meditation class in which we did some stretches before. And then we sat. And there have been very few instances in my life where I've met someone and I've looked at them and there's something inside of me that's like, oh, I've met this person before. And it was like that with my teacher. And um, it feels very metaphysical and esoteric as I even recount it. But there was just something in me that said, oh, this is going to be really good for you. And he taught me in that very first class the nature of suffering. And he said that "You you are not your thoughts. That was the first thing that he said. And when he was saying, you are not your thoughts, I was lost in a train of thoughts. I was thinking, oh, what am I going to have for lunch? And I should do this more often. This feels calm. And <laughs> where are all the girls? <laughs> all of these things going through my yeah. mind. But at that moment, I realized I didn't have to be a victim to the thoughts that were arising in my mind. And that was for me revolutionary at that point because up until then, any thought that popped into my mind, I would listen to. It's like, oh, I'd take another pill. Okay. Have some more to drink. Okay. You're a failure. I'm a failure. Like all of these like thoughts were going through my mind. And then here is someone saying, no, no, you can actually train yourself to not experience these thoughts and believe these thoughts. And you can actually become happy. And here is a roadmap on how to become happy and suffer less. And I was just like, oh, wow. Like how come I didn't know about this before? So that really just began the journey for me of I'd started practicing with this teacher every day for five years. I was at a point where I was like, maybe I'm going to take robes and become a monk. I seriously considered that for a period of time. I didn't, probably thankfully in the end. But then eventually I was dating someone who was doing a yoga teacher training. And she's like, hey, come and do this yoga training with me. And I wanted to impress her. So I was like, okay, hey, I'll, I'll come and do it. And um, <laughs> in this training, they you know offered me a job to come and teach and... And the rest was, was really history. 
Wow. So you kind of had, you had a little bit of a foundation with your family, but then kind of went astray and was led into some of your your suffering. So, so the the pain to purpose thing kind of is in there. Absolutely, it was just maybe a return to something that you had lost more so than something you had just never encountered, which was the case for me. It's just zero spirituality to suffering to really committing myself to the path. You know, I think there's nothing more spiritual than suffering. Yeah, how so? Well, I think in in those moments when you are going through hard times. Nothing is off limits, you know, like you question everything. Like you're looking for something in order to get you out of that suffering. And then the binary thinking that some of us tend to have when it comes to, you know, meditation or spirituality or it goes out the door because you're just looking for something that's going to help you. And for me, the, the periods where I've suffered the most have been spiritually the most breathtaking because I'm able to just not shut myself off from, from things. You know, whereas now, the older I am, the more I'm, you know, steeped in certain traditions. I can, and the older I get as well, I'm, I'm more critical of, you know, something that I'm like, oh, it's a new age fad or something like that, you know. But when you're in it, you forget the power of, of suffering and how all you want to do is be free from that suffering. Yeah, and it, it brings with it that humility and open-mindedness, yeah. right? <laughs> like that desperation. Absolutely. It just breeds like, I'm open to anything. I mean, that was the case for me, I think in the depth of my, um, you know, rock bottom, I think there's anything within, you know, the confines of morality that I would have done. So if someone mm. said, hey, you need to take someone's life in order to end your suffering, obviously I wouldn't. But right. I mean, I was so open. You could have led me down any path of spirituality, religion, mm. whatever it was, I would have been open to it if I believed that it had some potential to alleviate my suffering and change my life. One of the most powerful tools I've used over the past 25 years of self-healing is the practice of rituals and habits. If I can train myself to repeat something that's really effective, eventually it becomes automatic. So naturally, I'm always interested in using my ritual time wisely by stacking as many positive benefits as possible into the shortest window of time. This is why I love Higher Dose. First, they dropped their Epic infrared sauna blanket, then the PEMF infrared mat, and other cool gear like a red light mask. Well, they just pulled off another genius move by launching three new products that are specifically designed to complement their tech gear. First, you got the detox drops. This potent blend of hyperclean ingredients binds to toxins, carrying them out of your body as you get hot and sweat. I like to add this stuff to my water before a workout or sauna session. Then after you've worked up sweat, it's super important to refuel and that's where their hydration powder comes in. This electrolyte rich formula supercharges your water with magnesium and a potent blend of B vitamins to replace all the hydration you lost in the sauna. And then last but certainly not least is higher doses chill chews that are magnesium gummies that balance the mind and relax the body. So you can use these to keep yourself calm during the day or even sleep better at night. So Higher Dose nailed it again, folks, by providing all the components needed for detox, healing, and recovery. Get yourself loaded up at higherdose.com today and use my exclusive promo code LUKE15 at checkout to save 15%. That's higherdose.com, D-O-S-E. And again, the code is LUKE15. Um, you mentioned something earlier. Was the teacher you were referring to Miles Neal or was this someone else? 
No, that was a different teacher. Oh, okay. My, my first teacher, his name was Channa Dasanaika. He was a, a Sri Lankan teacher, an ex-monk oh, okay. that was living in Australia. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but you mentioned something about just seeing something in that person and having mm-hmm. some degree of familiarity. And I've had a few experiences in my life where it's not even a degree of familiarity, but I've gone to see a teacher speak or watched a video or whatever and just felt like, Whatever this person has, I want it, metaphysically speaking. Mm-hmm. just It's an essence or an air or a piece, a viewpoint, a perspective on life. And, I, and I've had a few of those that have come along, and it's such a gift when someone like that enters your field. And even beyond that, what a gift to be able to have eyes to see. Mm. Right? Imagine like how many teachers we've probably met in our life, and we just brush them off because they didn't hold any obvious significance to us in that moment. But some of mine have come in just the strangest ways with really a high degree of ambiguity and just like, what? How did this even happen? And it takes a while to even see it. Um, Have you had other experiences in your life where you met someone at a pivotal point and they became your teacher for whatever period and transformed your life? Yeah, I mean, truthfully, I think... um, there are a lot of people that can be your teacher. You know, I think relationships are big teachers for us and the people that we engage in relationships with. My co-founders are teachers in their own way because they elicit certain responses in me and they're teachable moments. But that experience I had with my teacher, I've maybe had once or twice before. And it's just this whole body somatic oh, like this is happening again almost. Like, oh, you're back. Mm, and mm-hmm. um, it sounds really woo. Even as I say it, I'm like, this is, it's funny I'm saying it, but like there's just a feeling of I've met this person. I think it's in a past life or I think there's something here that it's not an old connection. It's like, oh, I feel safe. I feel comfortable. And, you know, we see each other and there's just something that you can't explain. And I think you do your head in trying to, explain what that what <laughs> totally. that experience is like. Totally. Yeah. I, I think those are some of the most auspicious moments, you know, mm-hmm. when somebody's put in front of us. And it's not something you can will to happen, right? I mean, I, I think it's been for me a few years now since I've been in the presence of someone. I mean I interview a lot of fantastic people, but you know, someone where I'm like, they're my teacher. Yeah. I'm supposed to devote some time to learning from them. And that yeah. You know, that happens so maybe to many of us never even once in our lifetime. Yeah. And if, if it does, it seems to be infrequent, you know. And that yeah. reason, I think the reason it's on my mind is because that recently happened to me. Someone invited me to see a, um, a, a Vedic scholar, essentially, mm. um, an Indian man, speak. And, and it happened for Alice and I both. We walked in the room, we listened for a few minutes, and I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, and we're like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, like, whoa. In the, uh, We're in the, so blessed to be here right now. Yeah. In, in the Buddhist context, we would call that your karmic seeds ripening. And what that means is really, you know, in the course of our life, we, we plant karmic seeds, and good and bad, you know, based on the <laughs> actions that we've done. And it might take lifetimes, it might be one life, but you might come into contact with someone so wise and powerful and, and awakened that at that moment, that particular seed ripens. And it's like a blessing. It's like, oh, I've met my teacher or, oh, I've met this person that's going to change the course of my life. Um, hey, Cookie. <laughs> and uh, and it, was, it was definitely like that, you know, when I met my teacher. And 
I think definitely it was a karmic experience. Like there was something I was calling in and there was a suffering I was going through and there are things that I probably did in my life that enabled me to meet him because he profoundly changed the trajectory of my life. And, um, you know, who I am today is a byproduct of, of that interaction that I had. Yeah, what's something we could offer someone in terms of how to identify someone that could be that type of teacher? You know, mm-hmm. someone that, that is perhaps put in your life in a karmic way to play a pivotal role in your evolution. You know, how do we identify them and how do we sort of muster up the humility to become teachable and, you know, kind of offer everything? For me, what was necessary in those situations is really letting go of anything that I think I know, you know, and really emptying my mind and putting some trust in this person's vision or, or wisdom. Mm. I mean, I think firstly, you have to be open there's a degree of openness that, you know, obviously you and your partner had when you walked into that, that room that day. And you might not feel like it at the time, but I'm sure you've cultivated that through all your years of practice to get to that point. But the second thing is to have a relationship with the body so you know something's happening here. Mm, like with me, yeah. I didn't see him and think in my head, oh, yeah. It's like, no, I felt my body just go. Oh. It was like this like relax, relaxation feeling, like an exhale. And... um having that relationship with the body really helps. But then knowing you've had that experience and trusting that experience and surrendering because then the mind wants to make sense of it as well, you know, and that can sometimes be its greatest enemy is the mind going, oh, is this the person? Yes, I've been looking for you my whole life. And and instead of trying to do that, just allow your body to speak, you know, allow your body to every time you're around that person to feel like it's settled. And that's what it was like with my teacher. Like there was no hiding anything. Even if I were, if he asked me, how's your relationship going? I couldn't lie in front of him. And it was this weird, weird, weird feeling where it was like looking into my soul. Um, so there was just complete honesty and transparency there. And if we are present to our somatic experience in, in the presence of someone like that, then that's a usually a good indication of, of someone that's going to have an impact on our lives. Yeah, I love that. I I wouldn't have even thought of that of the checking in with your body of accessing your your inner knowing and intuition through that somatic experience. I guess that's why I asked that question. You know, I've just had it happen, but I don't know how it happened. I just know like, oh my god, I'm supposed to learn from this person. Yeah, but also and that's the best way because yeah. otherwise you project, and you know, there's all sorts of psychological inferences that can happen, like. Often you hear the story about, you know, yoga teachers like Bikram and stuff like that, for example, you know, all the controversy around him. That's because we project what this person should be in our life. You know, there's a teacher there or it's from childhood. We project onto this person our hopes, our dreams, our manifestations. But it comes from the mind. It doesn't come from the body. And if we really do check in with ourselves, there is a sense of like, when we're around someone we feel safe with. A teacher should, first of all, feel safe. You know, more than they stimulate our mind and you know, all these other factors, if you feel safe with someone, like that can usually be a very good indication that this is someone you should spend more time with. It's a great indication for a romantic partner too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Safety is often the thing that we're looking for uh, with the least amount of attention, right? It's not we sexy, want, right? We want excitement. You yeah, know, it's like safety. What? Who wants safe? Yeah. I want to feel like I'm about to die if they're not around. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a. I'm not sure if this is a real Buddha quote or not. You know, there's a website that that debunks Buddha quotes, but you know how they often say, you know, when you get butterflies, it means you're around someone that 
you're meant to be in love with. There's, um, there's a belief that it's actually the opposite in our tradition where if there's no butterflies, there's just a sense of like you're, you're calm, you're safe. Um, that's usually a good indicator of someone that you can grow with. Wow, I like that. That's been my experience. I mean, hard-earned mm. <laughs> lesson, but yeah. Um, you brought up something, you know, you mentioned the, the Bikram fellow and there's a phenomenon that I'm just... I wouldn't say fascinated by it because I don't spend a lot of time and energy, but it's something I have pondered wherein you have a human that has ascended to a certain level of consciousness and become some of a public figure or spiritual teacher, you know, thinking, I mean, just to give a classical example, it'd be someone like that or an Indian yogi or something, right? A mystic wherein they have a high degree of depth and truth that they're able to share. They start to uh, amass devotees. And then at some point there's a, sometimes even a very demonic, I'll dare say, fall from grace, right? Mm. I've always found that to be just such a strange phenomenon that someone can have truly legitimate spiritual gifts and even be able to impart Shaktipat, you know, transformative, transcendent Mm. experiences to and for their devotees yet have this active, really incredibly dark shadow side at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like they gain spiritual powers and ascension and then fall and then now they don't have the powers. Some of them still have these powers, cities and whatnot, even while they're misbehaving and their conduct is yeah. abhorrent and has fallen from grace. What's your take on why that happens and how someone maybe themselves can avoid that happening as they start to grow and evolve spiritually and maybe things to look out for in our, in our body or yeah. our experience to avoid teachers that are potentially um, dangerous in that way. Mm. You know, the somewhat simplistic answer to this is that everyone is human. <laughs> they are the byproduct of causes and conditions. So you put the right conditions around someone and anyone can either flourish or they can go the opposite way. I think where we fall short is that we think that a teacher or a guru, whoever it is, is not human. We think that they are beyond you know, the realms of um, their desires or bad things. You know? And I always think having a strong internal moral compass is important. And you know, ethics and morals can have their shadow side too because it can feel like you know, you're good, you're bad and do this and then you'll be good and do this and you're bad. But I think it's something for each of us individually to explore. Like what is my moral compass? Like what are the code of, codes of conduct that I exist in in this world? Teachers muck up, they fuck up. They do things and I know teachers. I've studied with teachers that have been like that too and it's really hard when, when you're really absorbed in their teachings and you, you know, you've dedicated so much time to them to then realize that, oh, wow, like they did this really bad thing. And I think that's where we have to separate the teacher from the teachings. If we think the teachings, we throw them out the door because this person has done something bad, then I think we have to look at ourselves individually. We all have done lots of really, really bad things. But what can we glean from the teachings? Because often the teachings aren't just from the individual. They come from a lineage or they come from a text. They come from somewhere. Most of the teachers I've studied with anyway, they haven't just made it up. 
it's come from a lineage. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot more confidence that I have in the teachings as opposed to the teacher. And yeah, there are many teachers that, for example, that first teacher, I studied with him for so many years. And, you know, we're still very close, but at, at certain points, I was like, oh, I don't really agree with the direction he's teaching now as an example. And that's okay. You know, we have many teachers in our lives. There's still a tenderness and a warmth and appreciation for that. But I think as our own spiritual intelligence develops, we'll start to see teachers everywhere. And then we'll also develop our own codes of conduct and we'll start to form our own belief systems. But we have to be careful because there are people that will take advantage of followers that will blindly, you know, fall down at your feet. It's sad, but, you know, so many traditions have that. It's not exclusive to, you know, Bikram. It's every tradition. In the Buddhist tradition, it's like that. Yeah. There's you know, Catholicism. Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. You know, and in yeah. the new world, spiritual yeah. world as well. Yeah. So it's just like there yeah. are humans and, and humans contain multitudes. It's a minefield out there. Yeah. You know, it really is. Over the years, I've been collecting and using dozens of different healing technologies at home. But if I had to pick just one device to keep on hand, it would likely be my ozone system. It's actually hard to imagine living without it at this point. And for those who don't know, ozone is a gas made from activated oxygen. And for the past 100 plus years, medical grade ozone has been used internally to provide a plethora of incredible benefits. In fact, it's got a long history of use in chronic disease, especially for cancer, autoimmune, Lyme, infections, and mold toxicity. Over 2,500 medical studies on ozone exist, and over 10 million treatments are done annually. But you don't need to go to a hospital, clinic, or even doctor to take advantage of the benefits of ozone. Research has found that there are easy ways to do it at home to get the same benefits, which is what I do to take my health and energy to the next level. Simply O3 ozone systems are designed to make ozone therapy safe and easy to implement. The 3.0 complete kit by Simply O3 comes with all the supplies you need to do ozone therapy at home for $1,800. Now, by contrast, a single IV ozone treatment at a clinic can cost anywhere from $300 to $1,000. So this is a really cost-effective way to get the benefits of ozone. So to get a lifetime of treatments for you and your friends and family for only $1,800, here's what you do. Visit simplyo3.com slash Luke. Then use the code Luke at checkout to get 10% off. Oh, and heads up, they offer a lifetime warranty and a six-month money-back guarantee. So you can try it out for six months and see the benefits yourself. And if you don't dig it, send it back for a full refund. Again, go to simplyo3.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout. You'll thank me later. Part of your answer, there's something really important in there in that we at times can put someone on a pedestal because of the energy that they're able to transmit or the degree of wisdom that they've amassed. And, you know, we sort of categorize them as infallible and therefore we become gullible and naive to their shadow side. You know, I think that's a really important part is to kind of always be, you know, you can be open-minded, but also practice discernment before just Absolutely. laying one's life at the feet of a, yeah. you know, a self-proclaimed master and then being duped into being exploited in some way, you know? Absolutely. I mean, critical thinking is part of a spiritual practice. And I don't think it's all about surrender everything 
it's about critical thinking. Like, okay, does this feel true? And my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is from the Buddha right before he passed away. And he said, don't believe anything anyone has said, even if I have said it, unless it you know, agrees with your own heart and reason. And that for me inspires me to question things. And anyone that doesn't want you to question things, you better question them. Yeah, you know? But so question, a question, okay, this person is saying this, does it feel true? Check in with your body. Like if your body is just doing all these things, it's usually an indication that you need to explore that a bit further. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's another piece in there with adhering to the tradition of a teaching, but divorcing yourself from the actual deliverer of the teachings. You know, yeah. and I think that's tricky. Um, I'm thinking of the case of Yogi Bhajan, the yeah. person that supposedly brought kundalini yoga to the United States, to the West Coast and all that. And so ensued a really beautiful practice that had a tremendous impact on my life. Mm. I never really resonated with his teachings per se. Like there's a lot of videos of his lectures and uh, many of my favorite teachers would quote him during class. And, you know, he was, his picture's on the wall and he's very much part of it, but I just never really resonated with him, but I really liked the yoga. And then a few years ago, there were all of these allegations of abuse and things that came out. And to be honest, I had kind of, I don't know, just merged out of that practice a bit myself at that time and wasn't really involved in the community. So I, I really don't know the exact details of it, but it seemed there were enough allegations that there was something credible to it, you know? And it was interesting for me because I still really enjoyed the practice and there was undeniable ways in which my life had benefited. Mm. Right. Even now, I mean, sometimes I'll do a little Kriya or whatever for my teacher training books and things like that. I'm like, oh my God, I forget how awesome this is, you know, <laughs> just because I get busy and you move on to some other practice. Mm. But it was challenging for me because I'm like, okay, if these allegations are true, I don't know that I even want any energetic tether to the person who delivered these teachings that are now in my teacher training book, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I think I was able to reconcile it at a certain point with essentially what you just said. It's like, I don't even think this guy made this stuff up. It was brought from somewhere else through a lineage. And mm -hmm. it's unfortunate that if that's true, that this one person fell to the corruption of their own unconsciousness and mm -hmm. shadow, that sucks. But it doesn't seem right to negate that entire body of work and the benefit that thousands upon thousands of people around the world have derived from the practice. Yeah. And, you know, without touching on something that is like a minefield <laughs> to, to it, it, that, I mean, I just opened up a minefield, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I'm just having a dialogue. Yeah. And in other words, like, am I supposed to just, for the rest of my life, write off anything related to Kundalini Yoga? Because I don't even think the things that he taught I don't even believe really there is a kundalini yoga. It's like these are ancient practices from Tibet and probably Nepal and India and all yeah. over the place that this dude happened to put together, but it's not like they're his practice. Exactly. It's a practice. Yeah. You know? So anyway, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. No, I, I think you, you reconcile it really well there. Is that, I mean, there's so much controversy around the appropriation of Hindu practices, Sikh practices when it comes to, to kundalini as well. And if what you're saying is, the practice itself was really transformative for you. And then that's great. The practice itself is transformative. Like keep practicing it. Um, where it becomes something for you to internally explore, for any, anyone internally to explore is when the context around how that practice is delivered begins to become part of your experience. You know, if you start to quote his language or careers, and then it's just, it's something 
every person should individually explore. You know, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. but for me, I'm I'm a I'm a believer that the intention of of any practice is to not do harm, first mm-hmm. of all. And if your practice is not doing harm to yourself or anyone else, do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. After that, um, I had this in my old podcast studio in LA. I had this frame. Actually, I still have it. And it has just like a round cutout where you can put a photo in it, but it's a big square frame. And I just couldn't find a cool photo to put in there. You know, I was digging around and poking around on the internet. And this is kind of before the Yogi Bhajan stuff. And I found a really interesting picture of him, you know, with his beard and turban. It just, mm. it looked cool. It just was like artistically, it could have been any guy mm. wearing the same garb, essentially. It wasn't so much about like an homage to him. And I put that in there and then it was like up in the background of my podcast after the stuff started to happen and I didn't know uh. it was happening. And someone's like, dude, you know, take that thing off your wall. Like he's an accused pedophile and rapist and all this shit. And I was like, oh my God, you know, it's like, there's sometimes we might even... So someone could have come at me for that, like, oh, you yeah. have this this demon on your wall. Meanwhile, I had no knowledge that that was even in the space. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. interesting. I mean, it's a very sensitive world we live in, you know? So um, people make mistakes. People do bad things. But, you know, I think I, part of me is also like these practices. And, uh, you know, an example that is very similar to Kundalini is... There's a tradition within the Buddhist landscape called Chogyam Trumpa. Shambhala actually was the name. Of the ah, tradition. Okay. okay. And then he, he died of alcoholism. And so all this. Right. Um, Is that Trumpa Rinpoche? Yeah. 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 Chogyam Trumpa. He's Rinpoche. kind of a notorious uh, boozer, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there was yeah. all these stories around, you know, he would party with his students and be drinking. And there was, you know, talk of sexual liaison and stuff like that. And a lot of my friends who were teachers in that lineage essentially left. But the teachings are true because it came from the Tibetan Buddhist system or the Mahayana Buddhist system. But you just, as you said early on, you just remove it from the deliverer and the practices are still powerful. You just have to break that connection that you have to this projection of a guru or a teacher. Because ultimately, I think all teachers, the best ones I know, are the ones that point you towards yourself. They are the manifestation totally. of your own intelligence, of your own wisdom. Totally. And um, if it if it becomes about them, then there's just more questions for me. And that brings to mind a really beautiful principle. I've had this happen with a few teachers, but primarily one actually it was the first teacher that ever posed the question to me that yours had to you, or just the suggestion that you are not your thoughts, you're not your mind. Or he would say things like, "I would say something," and he would say you know, who's the one, who's the one that had that thought, you know, just these sort of like, I mean, now I consider them to be just basic fundamental spiritual tools, but it was the guy that introduced me to the reality that these thoughts and these emotions aren't actually who I am. And that I was just so deeply identified with them for so long Mm. that I believed and experienced myself and my reality as that rather than as my soul or higher self or Mm. that kind of thing. Anyways, that guy, but he was, we, we used to call him the Oracle because me mm. and this other little group of recovering addicts would go to this guy and any problem you had, I mean, he would just look you in the eyes and figure it out. He'd just be like, oh, do X, Y, and Z, boom. And he would essentially just lay out some kind of now rather obvious spiritual principles that needed to be applied. Forgiveness, mm. surrender, humility, acceptance, whatever, right? Being honest with someone. So he would give us the answer to our problems. But then there came a time when I would be like, oh man, I'm in this jam with my boss or this girl or whatever. What do I do, man? And I'm like waiting for that. Yeah. 
that fix, right? Yeah. And it got to be really almost like an addictive thing. Like, oh, yeah. I need his energy. And it became disempowering. I think he knew that. So his answer started to become, well, what do you want to do? Mm. I'd be like, well, <laughs> if I knew that, why would I be calling you, you know? But it was really, is one of those, you know, subtle teachings that was really kind of what you just alluded to. It's at a certain point, we are going to become disempowered if we're not our own guru, if we're not our yeah. own self-teacher and self-corrector and able to access our relationship with the creator or our higher selves or our heart or intuition to be able to meander through life's challenges. Yeah. Otherwise, you develop a codependence with, with a teacher the same way you would in a relationship. You know, you, you I find these teachers because they ultimately point you towards the truth. And the truth is that you are the experience. You know, you're suffering. A lot of it you can create. Your freedom, you can free yourself from that too. So suffering, freedom, compassion, joy, everything is, is contained within our experience. It's not outside. It's not pointing you to this other partner who will make you happy or this other job that will make you happy. No, because it'll be the same experience. It'll probably replicate. But internally, <laughs> if you find the conditions, if you cultivate the conditions to awaken yourself, then those for me are the true teachers. I think there's such a humility in that, in not claiming to be the oracle. <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't claim it himself. But the people that point you towards yourself, there's, there's so much richness and depth in, in those people. Yeah. Back in the 90s, my friends used to call me a health nut. You know, drinking smoothies, taking vitamins, doing saunas, colonics, and all the old school health practices. Well, my commitment to health has never wavered since. And lucky for me, the innovation over the past two decades has been incredible. We just live in an unprecedented time of opportunity when it comes to taking your wellness into your own hands. And one of my non-negotiables is getting a daily dose of red light. There are dozens of clinically proven benefits from red light therapy, and I've experienced many of them myself. Most importantly, I'd say cellular vitality and energy, which is why I'm so committed to my daily Juve red light sessions. Aside from the obvious benefits, I've been recommending Juve for years because the quality of their devices are simply the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options that gives me the flexibility to use them how I see fit. Now, I personally dig the full body modular system myself because I can blast myself with powerful red light all over my body very quickly. But Juve also makes many sizes like their handheld device. It's called the Juve Go. That's really great for targeting specific areas of your body like hurting joints or sore muscles. But no matter what Juve device you use, the benefits are definitely there. To get in on this red light magic, hit up juve.com slash Luke. And heads up, right now they're offering all of my listeners an exclusive discount on their first order. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. And use the code Luke at checkout for your qualifying order. Some exclusions, however, do apply. Speaking of people and their unconscious misconduct, you know, one massive spiritual tenant across many traditions, Christianity, Buddhism, and so on, is forgiveness. Mm. And something that I've wrestled with, I think, at different times in my journey is reconciling forgiveness with enabling, mm. right? Or it's like forgiving the perpetrator with the understanding that ultimately they're also a victim of their own experience and circumstances, their own unattended to 
wounds and instinctive drives that you know lead them into being a perpetrator but there's a certain i've witnessed in myself there's like a certain limit to my capacity for forgiveness because there are certain acts that i believe are truly unforgivable mm-hmm. And it's taken me a while to kind of wrestle with that and arrive that that's okay with me. Mm. I mean, speaking specifically of perpetrators of harm in my life, Mm. um, where I just kind of gave them a blanket karmic pass of forgiveness because I was able to see them as also a victim, right? Mm. And also to not be disempowered by seeing myself as a victim and just erasing that dualistic victim-perpetrator model from the experience, Mm. but really going deeply, deeply into it. I mean, this is over the course of many, many years of reinvestigating it but i have arrived in certain circumstances at a wall where it's just i actually don't think i'm supposed to forgive them Mm. i don't know if there's even a question in that i'm just kind of riffing on something that i've been wrestling with inside and see what your perspective is on you know how do we reconcile forgiveness when sometimes that entity or action is not actually forgivable so let me ask you a question yeah so as you work towards trying to forgive this person and you've come to the conclusion that you can't forgive that person, how does that feel? In this particular instance, with this one person, it actually feels pretty good. Mm. Yeah. And does it feel like you forgiving them would be you condoning them or their actions? It feels like forgiving them would be a betrayal of my integrity mm. and a betrayal of my honor and magnificence as a imperfect human soul mm. you know mm-hmm. so it's like somebody steals something from me or you know like scratches my car and doesn't leave a note like that type of shit the trivial stuff super easy like yeah. you go, oh my god how many times have i been an asshole in my life i mean i've done some horrible things in my early years mm-hmm. in my unconsciousness um or just micro forgiveness you know you have a disagreement with your partner or something and they say something that hurts your feelings like can instantaneously like forgive people kind of in the moment but with trespasses of of a certain degree or nature i have forgiven and then had to gone back and been like no actually i don't think it's supposed to Mm. and so where i've arrived with it and open to any interpretation Mm. or take on this is kind of this happened quite recently i was just really working with this peace and i kept trying to go back in and forgive and it just wasn't happening Mm. well i wasn't able to do it and then if i went one level above that i was able to forgive that god or creation had created this polarized duality in which a perpetrator of evil and harm existed. Mm. So it's like I was able to give the whole forgive the whole karmic system mm-hmm. in its entirety, but not the individual actor. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of I felt reconciled in that. Because within that ultimately is a forgiveness of the perpetrator, right? Because right. they're under the umbrella of this the karmic this, seeds. Yeah, this karmic dance that's going on universally in, in the in the field of consciousness or god you know it's like god wants to experience itself so it creates all the things yeah rapists murderers pedophiles you know they're part of god yeah and that's been part of the reconciliation to me but the individual actor is a representation of that 
karmic system, it's a pass still. I mean, I think first thing when it comes to forgiveness is really checking in and saying to yourself, do I need to, is there an energy here that I need to transform? If you've made peace with the incident, then perhaps there isn't anything to forgive. You've made peace with it. Where it becomes challenging is if you haven't made peace with it and there's still a tension, like you carry around this like, can't believe this person did it to me, can't believe this person did it to me. Then that's something for you to work with, you know, work with that, with forgiveness. My invitation though would be to explore forgiveness not as something that will somehow affect them, but something that will transform you. And I'll look at it individually from my own self. Forgiving certain people in my life has just alleviated suffering from my own life because I've been carrying these things you know, that I haven't forgiven, carrying it with me, carrying it with me. So forgiveness for me is a practice that ultimately just transforms me. It doesn't condone anything that this person has done. And ultimately, as you mentioned before, you look at the grand scheme of things, you look at karma you know, in general, and that's a lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of burden that they will have to bear at some point. You know, so when you understand the things that they have done will ultimately come back in some way, shape or form. That for me also springs compassion. It's like, oh, this person's going to suffer. And they probably are suffering now, but they're going to suffer a lot at some point in time. And forgiveness then is all about me. Like I forgive this person, so I don't have to carry it with me. And it's that age old example. Um, It's another, could be a fake Buddha quote, I'm not sure. Where there's (laughs) a... It's the story of the Buddha saying that, you know, walking around holding anger and resentment is like holding a hot steel rod and expecting the other person to be burnt. You know, and I, yeah. I think of that often. It's like, okay, forgiveness for me is me dropping that rod. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's a lot in there. Yeah, I think with that situation, as I reflect on it now, I feel very complete. You know, I'm not, it's not something that I'm holding, walking around, oh, yeah. that fucker, you know and seeking revenge or even wanting him to meet any kind of suffering or eternal hell or damnation at the hands of his karma, that there is a compassion there. But I think it's also just like a reclamation of my boundaries and my sovereignty. That's why I think it feels good in my body rather than just like, oh, it's okay. You know, I forgive him. Right. Forgive them for they know not what they do, like right. that kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, he was also a victim. And that might be true, but it's like, no, now there's an adult in the room and the adult within me, my soul, my higher self is like, fuck that. I'm not tolerating any misconduct from myself, first and foremost, mm. and thus from anyone in my field or experience. And that is compassion in its purest form is that it's, we call it in Buddhism, the fierce sort of compassion, because sometimes you can feel meek. Right? When we talk about compassion, like, oh, it's okay. Let me go and make sure he's okay. And compassion is, is drawing a boundary. Like I care about myself enough that I'm not going to engage with this person. And it's also understanding that he is a byproduct of causes and conditions and he's reaping his own karmic seeds. So he will have an experience completely devoid of you in this lifetime or another. But that boundary is compassion. It's compassion for yourself saying, I don't need to... Uh, there's nothing I need to complete in this experience. Like I, I feel whole, I feel complete, I'm at peace. Let's move on. I love it. So I've been digging into your your app. This to me, it's like a virtual studio for yoga, Pilates, meditation, breath work, mindfulness. Super, super cool. And when I 
when I log in there, which I usually do on my phone. And today I figured out you can do it on a desktop yeah. too. I was like, oh, that'd be a lot easier to do like yoga if I could right. put on my big monitor. I was like, oh, duh. Because <laughs> I couldn't see my little phone, you know? So anyway, um, open and and we'll put a, a link, you guys, uh, lukestory.com slash open, wherein you guys can get this app for 30 days free, which is freaking awesome. So thank you for that. But I'm in there and you're doing like like you did today. You're teaching all of these different sort of techniques of mindfulness and all of these different breathing exercises that all have a different outcome. Like I did one today that I think was the two-minute espresso shot or mm. something, right? And it was this very active breath and and it, it did, it worked because I had done some of the more calming ones earlier and I wasn't feeling really like on point for the, the conversation mm. we we're about to have. But as I dig into the app and just sit here with you, I'm curious, like where did you learn all the different techniques? Because you seem to know a lot of different ones and also know the purpose and the outcome of each one. Mm. Like, how'd you put them together? How long did it take you to learn them all? Where do they come from? <laughs> did you make any of them up? Like, what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, look, the open app is all around exploring somatic mindfulness. And so when I talk about somatic mindfulness, I mean experiencing presence and connection in the body, not just from the mind, because there's, you know, there's a lot of that. When we experience things from the body, the breath is the conduit between the mind and the body. You know, and so breath work is interwoven into each of our practices. And these aren't necessarily practices that we've plucked up out of the air. These are like indigenous practices. They've, you know, Tumo breathing, for example, you know, what is the basis of Wim Hof's breathing practices? That's been around in the Tibetan system for, for so many years. Then we've renamed things like the espresso shot is, you know, it's another yogic breathing practice. But all of it is being designed so we can just arrive back into the body and just feel ourselves, you know, in this present moment in a different way. So even if we are doing yoga, there is this connection to our body and to the earth. If we're meditating, there's a connection with the breath. And all of it is being designed to just bring us to the here and now. Awesome. Yeah, the other one that I did today, I'm just looking at my notes here, was this spacious circular breath, mm. the one that you taught in the app. And I've, I've done a lot of breath work. And like I said, many years of Kundalini yoga, which involves many different Kriyas that are breath-centered, sometimes really long and extensive. So I was like, oh, I think it was 10 minutes or something. I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be no big deal. It was actually pretty, pretty vigorous, you know? Right. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, I had to kind of take a pause for a second. And then you invited me uh, in the experience to go at my own pace. And I was like, yeah, that was too fast. I actually can't keep up. Um, so it was it was pretty intense. And I was like, man, this is cool. Because just it's one of those things like you've, just when you think you've kind of tried everything, like, ah, breathwork, yeah, I've been there, done that. And and I practice breathwork almost every day on my own. But mm. um, as far as like all the different techniques and styles, so it was really fun to get in there and see that you're kind of cracking different codes and going in different directions. I've been using the app for a while now, but today I wanted to just experience a bunch of different things and mm. in preparation for this. But another one I did with this, I think he was a Swedish guy, I forget his name, was like a vocal toning. Yeah, thing that was super cool too. And it's interesting that I did it before we recorded. It was probably an hour before you came over. And I thought, I need to do this before every podcast. Yeah, Because oftentimes I'm, I'm waking up, doing my thing. I might say hi to my wife, but I'm not actually using my voice. Yeah. And then I sit down on a microphone and try to talk for two or three hours in some cases. And I was yeah. like, ooh, that has another application. So I don't know, break down like the vocal toning, the different stuff that you guys offer on there. Because it's it's very well done and I really want mm. people to be motivated to check it out, especially people that live remotely. I think, yeah. sorry to ramble here on this 
never-ending question, but <laughs> I get a lot of messages from people that say, I live in XYZ place. We don't have like a local community that does yoga and breath work and mindfulness or plant medicines or whatever. Like they just don't have that culture where they live. Mm. And so I think that's one of the most potent applications of what you've done with your app is like taking it for people that, you know, live rurally or just live in a culture that doesn't have that kind of um, presence. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we we launched this app in the middle of a pandemic. So it was, uh, it, was it was yeah, it was it was designed for people to feel connected. I mean, I know? guess well, I was like thinking brutal because so many people try to launch businesses in the beginning of 2020 and just tank. But do you think that worked to your advantage because people are stuck at home and like wanting to get out of the anxiety of that whole experience? I mean, yes, but we also had no choice. <laughs> that was right. the other part of it, right? All of us were stuck by ourselves. So the, the app itself has been designed so you can find a community there. We have live classes, you know, when you jump on the, yeah. the laptop yeah. where you'll see a chat box going off from before the class to the class ending. And people are like, hey, Janice, happy birthday. How's your thing going? And we've seen a community start to form just around the live experiences. But also these practices have been designed to be functional. So just like you said, you were like, hey, I'm, I'm, my voice, I haven't used it before. The vocal toning is a great one because it A, brings you into your body. It activates your voice. It affects the vagal vagus nerve. So you start to feel yourself drop into a parasympathetic state right before a practice like this. But it's also there's practices like the espresso shot. Like, oh, I've got to wake up and I've already had a coffee, but I need something else. There's that. There's a a pre-sleep breathing practice or a meditation practice. There's yoga nidra practices. So all of these um, practices have been designed with the user in mind to drop them into their body and allow them to really choose what outcome they want, whether it's get up and go or wind down and, and sleep. There's a technology to that that we've designed and we've curated all of these to music, to not just popular music, but we've worked with independent record labels and artists because we know, when, and one of our advisors is an ethnomusicologist, we know the power of sound. You know, just the way that you are using your voice. I'm sure your, your partner was hearing you. Um, there's also a resonance to that voice <laughs> yeah. as well. I know. was wondering that when I was down in my office. You know, I mean, she's not going to be surprised by any weird shit that I do. <laughs> but I wondered, like, because I've never done that and the whole time we've been together, or at least not just by myself. So yeah, I was wondering, but carry on. Yeah, you know, it's it's there's a an intelligence and a technology to to sound and breath, and we've tried to merge the two and, and deliver something that anyone wherever they're living can feel like they're first of all connected to themselves, but then connected to a community of practitioners. Yeah, that's a really key distinction actually, because the first time I logged onto the app and did a class, it was a live guided meditation with you, mm. and you know I was maybe five or ten minutes before, and I logged in and I don't know registered, but whatever, raise my little hand in the chat or something. And then you're right. Like all these people started piling on like, oh, hey, hey, what's up? Glad yeah. to have you. And then you seem to, when you came on, then you recognized different names and were like interacting with those people. And thought, oh, that's, that's super cool. Again, especially for people that don't have, I mean, where I live, we're like 30 minutes from downtown Austin. I'm not driving 30 minutes to yeah. go to yoga class. <laughs> you know, or go do a, I mean, sometimes, but not really. If I could do it at home and not like spend all that time driving, I, I would like it, especially if I can get that sense of community and start yeah. to get to know some of the people that are like-minded. Yeah. Um, I think you may agree with this as well, that 
over the long period of time, your spiritual practice needs a community. You need other practitioners to be able to really a develop and go deep into your practice, but also hold you accountable and and be a support system. And we call it a sangha. You know, Buddhist. Um, terminology, a sangha is a community of practitioners gathering around something. And here at Open, it's a shared belief. It's a shared worldview, for example. And being able to log on, even when you don't feel like it some days, and then seeing your favorite person on there, and they're like, yo, Luke, what's up? <laughs> There's just something in that, you know? And yeah. um, it's something that we've carefully curated over the years. And, and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful because you can also turn on your webcam. If you jump on, uh, oh, the, really? If you jump on the desktop, oh, and then okay. so you get to see these people, so it then just doesn't become this two D app where you're hitting right. play and stop. Because right, it's a bot, <laughs> right? You then get to see them. <laughs> it's the know? Namaste bot, you know? There they are again. <laughs> that yeah, that's super cool. I've literally never met anyone in my life who doesn't like a little sex from time to time. In fact, some folks like it a lot of the time. The thing is that for men, their physical readiness is an important part of making this happen. Remember the last time you were at the gas station and you saw on the counter those horribly branded erection pills? Did you ever take a second to see what's actually in those products? They are terrible for you, just super toxic. And the same goes for most of the medication on the market that claims to help men in the bed, but who wants a four-hour erection, nasty side effects, heart problems, and a possible trip to the hospital to get rid of that thing? Well, luckily for me and maybe some of the men listening, I recently found this really cool product called Joy Mode that fills this gap. It's a performance booster, much like a pre-workout, but for sex. It's really cool. Joy Mode's gig is that they make natural and science-backed sexual wellness supplements for men. Their sexual performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness and sex drive. It contains clinically supported doses of L-citrulline, arginine, yohimbine, and vitamin C. To get yourself primed with the old joy mode, all you do is tear open the sachet and mix it with a glass of water, just like your favorite electrolytes. And uh, about 45 minutes later, it's going to be magic time. You'll notice better blood flow, better erection quality and firmness, and increased sexual energy and drive. I've actually taken this product myself many times, and uh, frankly, I was shocked that it actually worked and provided zero side effects. Do you gentlemen want to spice things up in the bedroom and boost your sexual performance? And do you want to do it naturally without those nasty prescription drugs? Well, we've got a special offer for Lifestylist listeners right here. Go to usejoymode.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's usejoymode.com slash Luke. Another thing I wanted to give you kudos for is just, I'm just a visual person. I love beautiful aesthetics. The site, the app, like all the photography, all the video is like really well lit. And also you mentioned the music. I was wondering that today and I had it in my notes. I was like, where are they getting this music? The music's epic. And like in the one that I did today, your your 10-minute circular breathing one, it's like it was timed and produced beautifully. Like you had your little intro and you're like, now we're going to speed it up. And then it's like, you know, the music hits with it. I'm like, dude, this guy's... You really put a lot actually into the production value. I think that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. So how has that evolved? Like, where do you guys record the audio? The video looks really beautiful in some 
far out looking studio. It looks like it's from the set of Dune or something. You know, I'm just like, these guys are doing this shit right. So what what's the secret sauce? Like, how are you guys putting all this together? Oh, I mean, I think the meditation world has had like the worst marketing campaign of the last 2,500 years where we think it should be something. It should be, you know, photos of people on in the Himalayas or people in a bikini on the beach. Like those seem to be, if you Google meditation, that's what pops up. Right. Um, but for us, we believe that it's a new dawn for mindfulness 2.0, which is more somatic, more visually engaging. It brings people into the experience. And then in relation to some of the amazing things you've said, like we've recruited some of the best people from all around the world to help us create that. We have a director of music. He was our fourth hire at the whole company. Oh, wow. Because we believe music is so central and it unifies people, right? And people connect to music in a way that's very spiritual and very deeply meaningful. And then our head of production is, is the one who we have to thank for all the beautiful, beautiful visuals. And then our design was also carefully curated as well because we want to bring people into the experience and not make it exclusive, be it very inclusive. So our whole team, you'll see people from all shapes and sizes, usually people that have different ethnic, ethnic backgrounds and different looks. And there's a Canadian, there's an Australian, there's people from all over the place. And it's all by design because really this, this practice should be accessible to everyone. How much of your team works in physical proximity? Like you're, you're based in Venice, right? Mm. How many of the team are there versus people all over the world that are making a contribution? Well, at the start of the pandemic, we were all in different places. I was in Australia. We had a Canadian. We had a team in SF, a team in LA. Now the majority of us are together. But we still have some teachers that teach out in Australia, some in New York, uh, in different, different locations. Oh, okay, cool. And where do you guys shoot the like the yoga videos? What is that set? <laughs> Super cool looking. I'm it's, like, I want to live there. Like, yeah, it's in Venice. Oh, it's okay. in Venice. Yeah, it's been oh. designed to look like it's from the set of Doom. Oh, really? Am I the first? Per- <laughs> I'm not the first. Per- okay. You are, but now I see the similarity. It does. Yeah. It you know, it has that kind of sandstone and I don't know, architecturally beautiful. Yeah. Um, all right. So again, I'm going to remind people listening: go to lukestory.com/open, and you're going to get to uh, try out Open for 30 days for free. And thank you again for for offering that. I think it's super super useful, and also because like doing these kind of things in person can get very expensive. I mean, if you live in Venice or Manhattan and you want to go to like a breathwork and yoga class, movement class, a couple times a week, like it's not that accessible to some people. Not everyone has that kind of coin so that sort of breeds this exclusivity. And I understand why there's rents are high on brick and mortar spaces and got to have a whole team and a staff and insurance and all that. So I, I don't think people are like, gouging when it comes to that but if you're gonna like go drop 55 dollars to do a breathwork workshop or something like that and not everyone has a budget for that so i think that's another cool thing about this model i mean i think is to make it like really accessible to more people yeah and that's a core value of ours you know so no one is turned away ever so anyone that can't afford it all they have to do is send us an email and we have scholarships that are available we think our price point you know it's just under twenty dollars a month is is pretty affordable as well, considering like what yeah, class totally. will be. I'm like cancel Netflix and like one of your Amazon things, and you got that. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, these practices are also ancient. You know, they should be accessible to everyone, and if they are exclusive, it kind of becomes a very strange paradox in which we're living, where we're charging someone to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like this is how you breathe, and you know, charge us a lot of money for us to teach you that. 
uh, no, like the, the price point is very affordable and you'll learn techniques that you'll use in the course of your day. Yeah. And I guess from the ethics perspective, but also understanding that you've got a big team of people um, and probably investors that, you know, it needs to be a profitable venture. It can't be free and everyone just goes broke and then the thing goes belly up. But I think there's, with all businesses, there's probably a sweet spot, right? Where the business can scale and function and be profitable for everyone involved. But the end consumer is also not getting ripped off. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I think that it's, I don't think, I know it's possible for that to happen because some people like you are doing it, but I'm, I'm encouraging, inviting more people, more founders to kind of think from that mindset. I mean, especially if you're, you're doing something that is ultimately healing. It's something that you don't want it to be inaccessible. You know, it's something that is genuinely able to stop or help people suffer less and transform people's lives. And to put a really high price point on that just doesn't, doesn't feel good, you know. And it's something that we actively talked about as a company that we always want to be accessible. And with the money we do get, we want to be able to do good with it. And in order to do good with that, we have to generate some sort of revenue. And we have a really wonderful model in which the money that comes in, we do amazing things, you know, outreach programs and scholarships locally and and internationally. And we're also creating a a business that we think is going to support a lot of people's lives, you know, our employees and the teachers who... Teachers are are people that aren't paid a lot. You know, you've lived in LA a lot, you know, as a teacher, you schlep around from class to class, totally. to studio, and sometimes totally. you make $20 a class. And yeah. these teachers give so much. They literally crack their heart open every class to be able to deliver something from that. And so to be able to reward them and to enable them to have a family is, is just something really wonderful that That's awesome. we want to do. Yeah, I love it, man. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life that you can share with us today before you go? The first one was my daughter. I had my daughter when I was 19, transform my life. It gave me a reason to look outside of myself for happiness because up until that point, it was all about my peak experiences and what I was getting. So she was the first one. The second was my teacher, the one that I met, Chana Disanaika. He taught me compassion. He taught me about generosity and he taught me that being generous in my time, my money and all of these things wasn't going to affect me in a negative way. It was actually going to be a positive for me. And he was the first one that really showed me unconditional love in my life. And the final was my mother as she was passing away. She passed away in December last year and she handled her death, which was from cancer, a very rare form of cancer, in such a graceful way that she, her final lesson, because up until that point, after having my first child, I was very hesitant towards having other children. I was like, oh, one's good. Like I can, I've had her and she's great and we're best friends. And, and I was just very scared of having any more kids and diving into that world again. But as my mother was passing away, she had one request and she was like, I want to be in my home, surrounded by my kids and my grandkids. And I had two months with her and every day I'd ask her, what is it that you want to do? What do you want to eat? And she's like, I've lived my whole life and I just want this one thing. And that final teaching of being surrounded by my brother, sister-in-law, nephew, and my daughter, as my mother passing away, just taught me that everything else in life comes and goes, but the ability to be surrounded by your loved ones as you're transitioning into whatever life exists beyond this 
something really sacred and special. So that was a transformative teaching for me. Wow. Beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, I feel it. I'm like, oh man, that hits. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for creating Open, such an awesome service to humanity when I think we really need it. I mean, it could, you could have taken any decade in recent history and be like, oh, we really need help. Humanity's about to go off a cliff. But I think right now, honestly, yeah. with everything going on in the world, man, it's like we really need ourselves as individuals to do this work yeah. of evolution because it's kind of bleak out there. If not for ourselves, for our kids and the yeah. generations, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for joining us, man, and have a safe flight back home to my former city of Los Angeles. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And that, my friends, was the premiere Lifestylist episode of 2023. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling hella inspired to step up my meditation and breathwork practice this year starting today. And my sincere desire is that you too feel lit up to embrace some of the practices we discussed here. To make that even easier, make sure to take advantage of your 30-day free trial of Manoj app called Open. It's pretty damn awesome. It's simplicity, elegance, and ease of use make it a no-brainer to integrate into your life this year. To get on board, here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com slash open and use the code Luke for 30 days free. So awesome. That's lukestory.com slash open or just click that link in the show notes app on your podcast player. Now, carrying on, continuing the theme of making this year the best ever, next week's episode is going to deliver the goods big time, folks. It's episode 452. It's called Homesick, How Testing and Mitigating Mold, Water, and EMF Can Save Your Home and Your Health with Ryan Blaser. I just know next week's show is going to answer so many important questions about the air, water, lighting, and EMF in your home. In fact, Ryan came out to Austin and did his old testmyhome.com magic inspection on our house. Then we discussed all the things he found in the middle of the inspection. So obviously, next week's show is an insanely value-packed episode. So please do the following. Click follow or subscribe on your podcast app so that next week's show automatically downloads to your device. Now, if you want to go to the next level, visit lukestray.com slash newsletter right now. Seriously, just do this and get on my podcast publishing email list. This way, next week's link-filled episode will be delivered right to your inbox on Tuesday morning. And trust me when I say you're going to want all the show notes for this one. One more time for the folks in back, go to lukestray.com slash newsletter and just enter your name and email to join the list and I'll send you all the goods every week. And with that, my lovely truth finders and seekers, I bid you farewell until next week's show. Happy New Year, and know that you have my full commitment to bring you the best episodes in the world all year long, rain or shine. Peace. Peace.